Morning, everyone. There we go. Good to see all of you. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, please? That is a surprisingly larger number of people upstairs than I was expecting. You guys are really committed to that. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word, verses 35 through 40. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel, and this is where we find ourselves this morning. Look at me at verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can be seated. And let's pray that God blesses this message. Father, we should be mindful uh, as we recognize in these verses every day of your son's return. And I know for myself, I don't think often enough about Christ's second coming. I, I don't uh, live in light of that reality that he will return, uh, whether in my lifetime or, or I'll stand before him at the day of my death. And I should be more mindful of that, Lord, and I suspect it'd be the case for everyone else here. We see these wonderful verses as Jesus warned his listeners in his day, and uh, it is as much a warning for each of us. And I pray that we would take heed to what he says here and apply these verses. We thank you that Jesus also showed us how to prepare for his return, and I ask that we could apply these verses to our hearts. Lord, give us soil that's receptive to what you want to say to us and the work you want to do. I believe we all have different things going on in our lives that can be changed um, by recognizing Christ is returning and living in light of that. And so help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers who then uh, have the changes take place in our lives that you would desire to see as a result of this message. We thank you for this time, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. The title of this morning's sermon is Coming in an Hour You Do Not Expect. Coming in an Hour You Do Not Expect. I sweat pretty easily anyway, so... I'm already a little sweaty. I don't want you to think I'm guilty of something or there's any unrepentant sin in my life. Just easier for me to sweat. So in this section, not only does Jesus tell us to look forward to his return, he tells us how to prepare for it. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. So we have two illustrations here that have great application for the Christian life. The first application uh, requires taking our minds to pictures and movies that I'm sure we're, we're familiar with of uh, men in Christ's day and them wearing those long robes, uh, obviously not very ideal for working or for moving quickly because they could easily trip. And so they had to take those robes, they had to pick them up, and then they had to tuck them into their belts so they could move quickly. And this was called girding the loins, which is how it's translated in some Bibles, probably the closest equivalent in our language would be let's roll up our sleeves so that we can get something done so we can act and move quickly the new king james says let your waist be girded so we must be ready to act and this brings us to lesson one christ wants us ready to serve him 
Christ wants us ready to serve him. Now, this idea of girding up the loins actually looks back to Passover itself, or to be very clear with you, what Jesus is talking about here in verse 35 looks back to Passover and the Jews having to be ready at any moment. Remember how they were told to eat the Passover meal, Exodus 12, 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so they ate in this very prepared way where they were ready at any moment. I told you many times that the Old Testament prefigures the New Testament. There's often a physical account in the Old Testament that looks forward to a spiritual reality in the New Testament, and that's the case here. Uh, what we see is a foreshadowing and Passover of what the Lord expects of us during the church age. So when they had to eat it this way, to be clear, it wasn't just about what was happening at that moment in Egypt. That's a superficial understanding of that. What the Jews were doing in eating the Passover that way had a deeper significance, which the Apostle Peter really unpacks for us. Just so you don't think this is my opinion, here's how it looked forward to the spiritual reality of us being ready. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says to gird up the loins of your mind. So he takes this analogy, or he, he takes this uh, idea that people would be very familiar with of individuals taking their robes and doing that physically and how we should do this spiritually. He's applying it metaphorically to our thoughts. That just like they were getting ready physically, we need to get ready mentally. Just as people in biblical times would gather up their robes so they can move quickly and freely, we need to gather up our thoughts and focus on things that allow us to serve God quickly and freely. We need to eliminate those, those thoughts that might trip us up. And so simply put, we shouldn't be mentally or spiritually lazy. And I don't know about you, but it takes a deliberate effort to go through this life and be Christian in our thoughts, <laughs> be thinking about those things that we should think about and take captive those things we shouldn't think about. It, it's an intentional effort to remove those things from our minds so that we can be focused on the things that the Lord wants us focused on, and that's what Peter has in view here. Listen again to the end of this verse from Peter. He says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we can tell that Peter is talking about Christ returning, just like our verses in Luke. And so Christians who looked forward, Peter is saying that Christians who looked forward to Christ's return would have an easier time obeying or doing what they were supposed to do. And the reason I stress that is we see the same thing in Luke chapter 12. Let me say this one more time. Peter was telling his readers that Christians who looked forward to Christ's return were going to have a much easier time obeying than those people who were not looking forward to Christ's return. And I mention that because you can see the same application in the verses we're looking at in Luke 12. And this brings us to lesson two. Focusing on Christ's return provides victory over sin. Focusing on Christ's return provides victory over sin. I need to give you an elevated view of this chapter to be able to appreciate this lesson. Look back with me in Luke chapter 12 at verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, 
beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So first, just notice that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and this would be the lowercase d disciples. It would essentially be anyone that was following him at this time. Second, we're not going to read all the verses, but you can probably look at the headings, uh, subheadings of this chapter to see the different things that Jesus talked about leading up to verse 35. So just go ahead and kind of skim these verses with me so you get this elevated view. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus warns about hypocrisy. Then in verses 13 through uh, 21, he warns about covetousness. And then in verses 22 through 34, he warns about worrying. And then between verses 34 and 35, there's a shift in emphasis from being worried about the present to focusing on or being watchful of the future. And then in verses 35 through 40, he warns about carelessness. Now, here's what's interesting. Just follow me for a moment. If we, there are these different tools or approaches to resisting sin or temptation that we are familiar with. If I said, if you were talking about struggling with a certain temptation and I said, what are some uh, ways you could strive or tools you have at your disposal to resist that temptation, my suspicion is many things would come to mind. You would probably say, well, I can read verses associated with that sin in scripture because that will convict me about it and help me resist that temptation. Or you might say, I can pray that God helps me resist that temptation in that moment. Or you could say, I could get some accountability in my life. Perhaps I could start attending a men's or a women's group, or I could reach out to a close friend and say that I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me, and can you hold me accountable? But my suspicion is, and this was the case for me prior to this week, I, you might not mention Christ's return as a strong resource against resisting temptation. In other words, if you were to talk about how you resist temptation, perhaps mentioning Christ's return wouldn't be one of the resources that, or ways in which you would approach resisting temptation. But I would say that that's very much what's in view in these verses, that one of the best ways to resist temptation is focusing on Christ's return. To conquer the sins that Jesus discussed earlier in this chapter, hypocrisy, covetousness and worry, one of the best ways to do so is to focus on his return. And just think about it. When you're focusing on Christ's return, you're not going to want to be a hypocrite, right? You're not going to want Jesus to come back and find you uh, behaving in a very inappropriate way or acting like you're someone that you're not. Or you're not going to uh, be coveting. If you're struggling with that, you think about Christ's return and then suddenly those things that you would covet that seems so valuable and significant become very, in, uh, very insignificant or, or considerably less valuable to you. Or the other temptation Jesus was discussing, worrying. We're not going to worry because as soon as we start talking or thinking about Christ returning, all those things that we worry about don't seem very big anymore. And so it just to be an encouragement to you that I was in, using to encourage myself this past week, the focusing on Christ's return can be a great resource associated with resisting temptation. Now look at the second illustration in the verse, which is that of a lamp burning and providing light. So the beginning of the verse is all about having our waist girded so that we can move quickly, so that we're ready to act. But what do you need to be able to move quickly or run where God wants you to run? You've got to be able to see where you're going, right? Or you're going to end up tripping, you're going to run into something or someone, you're going to hurt yourself or hurt someone else. And so you take off and I'm out and someone's blindfolded it's only a matter, or they can't see where they're going, it's only a matter of time before there are problems. And so it's very fitting that Jesus mentions right after moving quickly or girding up uh, the loins of our, our minds that he talks about our lamps burning, and this brings us to lesson three. 
We need God's word to see where we're going. We need God's word to see where we're going. The Christian life is frequently compared to a race. It is not going to be a race that we are going to be able to run very well if we can't see where we're going. And our lamps provide us with the light that we need. Now in Scripture, what is light often compared with? With truth, with righteousness, with morality. And darkness is often referred to or associated with deception or lies or sin or unrighteousness. And we live in a dark world, and we get the light or the truth that we need to see. I don't mean to see physically, because that's what was interesting in Jesus' day. He was regularly talking to people, uh, in particular the religious leaders, about their blindness when they could see well physically. Where you look at John 9, and you've got a very interesting account there where there's a blind man who could see much better than the religious leaders could see because he could see spiritually. So when I'm talking about being able to see, I'm not talking about being able to see physically. I'm talking about being able to see spiritually, and we get that light or that sight from God's Word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so it's the light of God's Word that allows us to see where we're going after we're, you know, girded and ready for action. Then God's Word points us in the right direction. In ancient days, oil lamps provided people with light, and they needed to keep refilling them with oil, needed to continue filling them with oil for them to continue burning. And just think about the parable of the ten virgins, because it has many similarities to these verses that we're looking at. Both of those passages, the parable of the ten virgins as well as these verses in Luke, are about Christ's return, and listen to some of the verses from it. Matthew 25, 3. When the foolish virgins, they took their lamps... They took no oil with them, but the wise virgins took flasks of oil with their lamps. So these foolish virgins don't have any oil to keep their lamps burning. The wise virgins did. Verse 10, Matthew 25, 10, while the foolish virgins went to buy oil, the bridegroom came. The door was shut. The foolish virgins said, Lord, Lord, open it to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And this is the same point that the verses in Luke are making that we must be ready and watching for Christ's return. And just so you can see how much this passage in Matthew, the parable of the virgins, parallels the passage in Luke, look at verse 36 in Luke 12. Jesus says, Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And so we talked about being ready to serve Christ, and that's exactly what this parable illustrates, servants who are ready to serve their master. And notice the words at once. That's one of the keys to this. They have to be, um, you know, at that moment or at once ready and prepared for him. And let me explain Jewish weddings, because there's so much different, uh, in some ways, at least the planning for them is the exact opposite of the ways that we plan or prepare for weddings. So you have to decide on a, a wedding date, you know, so many months in advance so that other people even can prepare for it, put it on the calendar, you send out save the date, you know, send out the invitations and also tell people to save the date. Well, the Jewish weddings pretty much look like the opposite of that where there was, it was almost like a game where there was a deliberate effort to kind of keep things secret. And so the, 
the Jews would not, or a Jewish man would not even uh, allow his uh, future wife or his bride to know when he was going to come for her. He's going to show up at her house at this unexpected time, and then he's going to take her, and then he's going to bring her back to his father's house. And the background to this, or this gives us the background we need for the, the very famous words of Christ about coming back to get his bride at an unexpected time. In John 14, 2, he said, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus is describing exactly what would happen when a groom would come at a completely unexpected time to surprise his bride. She had to be prepared for him, and then he would take her back to his father's house at an unexpected hour. But in, this, in these verses, it's not so much about the bride. It's actually about the servants in the house who are waiting for the groom to show up with his bride and how they must be prepared for the groom's uh, arrival. So you see here that they're going to be back at the house. They're waiting for him to arrive. They have to be ready any moment. They've got to have the ropes, the robes tucked into their belts. They've got to be free to move and serve. And then the idea is, as soon as that groom reaches the door, what are they going to do based on the verse? I mean, they're so ready, it says, that they can open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And so the idea is they're back at the house and they're just waiting, you know, on pins and needles, knowing that he's going to show up with his bride, and he's not even going to be able to reach out, hopefully, and touch the door before they open it for him and then uh, usher him into the house and, and begin serving him. And this is the background to another famous verse. Romans 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. So this verse is kind of describing almost the opposite of the preparedness that Jesus wants. Here he's described as kind of sitting there knocking at the door. So not only did the servants not open the door for him when he arrived, the idea is he had to stand there and wait and sit on and knock at the door, and they still didn't even open it. But for the servants who are ready, when the master comes, look at verse 37. He says, Blessed are those servants... Whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and he will have them recline at the table, and he will come and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch, or he comes in the third, and he finds them awake, then blessed are those servants. And the key word here, which has really been the theme through this whole passage, is the word awake continuing to communicate how we must be ready at all times for Christ's return. The mention of multiple watches here, it makes the point that constant attentiveness is necessary because we don't know exactly when it's going to be. Now, in the days of the Roman Empire, the night was divided into these four watches. So our, the second watch would be our 9 p.m. to midnight. And then the third watch would be midnight until 3 a.m., I don't take this to mean that we must stay up all night or, you know, with um, toothpicks to keep our eyelids open, and if we were, happen to be asleep when Christ returned, then we're going to be in some trouble. That's not what's in view here. It, uh, it's like um, what is often the case many times in Scripture, that there's something physical that has a spiritual application. And so the idea is you can go ahead and you can sleep physically, or you can be sleeping physically when Christ comes, but you better not be 
sleeping spiritually when Christ returns. We need to make sure that we're alert, awake, spiritually speaking for him. Now, what's the blessing for the servants who are ready for Christ's return? Uh, It's almost shocking. I mean, you wouldn't even believe it if it wasn't recorded here for you in Scripture. But it says that the master is going to serve the servants. And this brings us to lesson four. Jesus will serve those who faithfully served him. Jesus will serve those who faithfully served him. Jesus will serve those who faithfully served him. So if we were having a conversation and I was talking with you and I said, what, what are some of the rewards or blessings associated with serving Christ? You know, what do you think he has in store for us? My suspicion is if you were to list what you believe is a reward or blessing that God has in store for you for faithful service, you probably would not tell me, well, Christ is going to serve me, right? You wouldn't list that as one of the, you might list some crowns or uh, cities you're given rulership over as the, as the parable of talents discusses or uh, any number of things, but you probably wouldn't say, well, the reward I'm looking forward to is Christ himself serving me. But that's what it says here in these verses. Verse 37, blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and he will serve him. So it is an unbelievable reversal of the servant illustration here that Jesus says he's going to be the one who serves those faithful servants who have faithfully served him. So it sort of looks this way. And I'll be honest with you that I'm not even completely comfortable saying this to you. I'm doing my best to exposit what the verses are saying or give you an idea what seems to be in view here. And it almost looks like Jesus says, you know, you've worked so hard. You have done such a good job. You have been so faithful serving me. You can sit down, you can relax, and now I'm going to serve you. And you might not be particularly comfortable with that. I'm not particularly comfortable with that. I don't like the idea. You could be saying something like, you know, well, after all we've done for Jesus, or after our faithfulness to him, or after we've served him, you know, he doesn't owe us anything. It's not like we've done so much for him that that, um, you know, we deserve him to come and serve us. It's more like after we're, we're undeserving servants, considering all Christ has done for us already, he doesn't owe us anything else. And that's true. I understand that. I feel the same way, but this is what the text says. It says that he serves those who served him. But then as I was reflecting on it, maybe we shouldn't be that surprised because one of the most famous accounts in the Gospels reveals Jesus basically, or not basically, but doing this for the disciples, right? What comes to mind? Something that looks pretty close to what we're talking about, Jesus himself girding up his robes so he can be ready to to serve or ready to act. John 13, 4, Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he takes a towel, he ties it around his waist, he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I don't take this to mean that in the future, or don't look at this in my mention of this account, that this is to imply that Jesus is going to wash our feet in the future. That's not the service that I think is in view. If you were to press me about it, I think it probably has the marriage supper of the Lamb in view. Much of the, uh, these verses about or parables about Christ returning look forward to the, to the wedding feast or to the time when Christ is brought together with his bride, the church. You can read about it in Revelation 19 after Christ 
second coming when he's brought together with his bride and then this marriage supper takes place and my suspicion is at that supper jesus serves us now at jewish weddings which are pretty similar to our weddings the bride and the groom are celebrated or they're treated like king and queen you know they don't do anything they don't lift a finger but it, and that would be the case at jewish weddings as much as ours but that's why this is such a dramatic reversal where we see that jesus the bride or the groom seems to be serving his bride or serving those who have faithfully served him now he introduces another illustration that's intended to encourage us to be ready for his return and it's the illustration of a thief look at verse 39 with me jesus says know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect now you could look at this and it could seem a little odd that jesus is making this comparison with a thief but i think it's important to understand jesus isn't comparing himself with a thief he's just comparing the way that he returns or the way that he will his second coming will take place with the way that a thief is going to rob you a thief is going to come at an unexpected time he is not going to announce his arrival and the same is true with jesus the only way to be on guard against a thief would be uh, to be constantly ready and the only way to be prepared for jesus's return is to be constantly ready a couple months ago i'd guess maybe two two months ago ricky in the middle of the night he raced to our bedroom i guess it was about 2 or 3 a.m and he was uh, seemed pretty alarmed and or scared he said that there had been someone who was at our front door pounding on it and so our kids that night i mean our girls sleep upstairs the kids were doing a little camp out in the living room and i didn't have a whole lot of time to process do i go you know get my gun and load it or what's happening here first and so i raced upstairs to the door and because it was so dark i couldn't see through the little um you know peephole and so then i turned on the light and i was able to look through the people but i still couldn't recognize the person they were kind of they did actually kind of kind of look sort of dark and not like a friendly person i'd want to invite in my house at this time and i yelled through the door and i and i asked who the person was and he responded and i did know who it was i recognized the voice and he he mentioned his name and i hadn't seen this person in some years and so i opened the door and he's this person's just uh terrified i mean that's the only reason he would come to my house in the middle of the night like he did and he's he can barely it seems like he can barely put words together he's so uh, fearful and he's telling me that he needs my help and i said okay well what can i do and i'm not kidding he said there's this biker gang that's chasing me that's trying to kill me and i said so you came to my house <laughs> where my wife and my children are sleeping and so i kind of you know walk out from the door and i look up and down the street i fortunately at that moment i didn't see any biker gang coming but i didn't really want him standing in front of my house much longer in case they happened to show up by chance and so i said well i i'm not really comfortable with you spending much more time here i'm i'm completely happy to help you why don't you come back in a few hours in the morning i can go ahead he, uh, he knew where the church was i said i'll meet you down there at the church in my office he'd been there before and i said and, and i'm I'll, i can help you but i'm not gonna i'm not bringing you to my house right now if there are people chasing you that want to kill you um and so why don't you come back in a few hours now the reason i mention this is it stands out to me as kind of the way you know the way this guy showed up at my house so unexpectedly 
so shockingly, uh, you know, absolutely surprised at his arrival is kind of the way I think that it might be uh, Jesus' arrival or the way that Jesus would show up. I, I imagine him showing up like this guy did, and I would just say, don't be like me. Don't be as unprepared as I was. I wasn't ready for him uh, to show up. It would be wonderful for Christ to return and for us to be ready and say, I was looking forward to this. I was expecting it. I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by your coming. Now, I want to address something that perhaps you've wondered about, and I don't just mean this morning, but uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you very easily could have had this question, and it's this. Christians talk about Jesus coming back soon, but he hasn't come back yet. And maybe the thing that has really confused you, or perhaps even bothered you, might not even be the people in our day who talk about Christ returning soon. It would be the authors of the New Testament, who 2,000 years ago were talking about Christ coming back. And uh, it makes it easy to do one of two things, and I want to discourage you from doing either of these things. In other words, to have so many people for so long talking about Jesus coming back soon, including the authors of the New Testament, it's very easy to do one of these two things, which I want to discourage you from doing. First, it's easy to get upset at people who say Jesus is coming soon. And by the way, there's a world of difference between saying Jesus is coming soon and saying Jesus is coming on a certain day. Does that make sense? We can say that Jesus is coming soon because that's what many of the authors of the New Testament said. That's what the Bible itself says. So to say Jesus is, is coming soon is to say, or to, uh, we should live that way, is essentially to say what the Bible itself says. But we can't say that Jesus is coming on a certain day because Matthew 24, 36 says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Second, it's easy to believe, start believing that Jesus is not coming soon. It can almost turn into this boy who cried wolf type scenario where you roll your eyes and you think, you know, okay, one more person who's going to be wrong just like everyone else who said this same thing. Actually, just just thought of this. I was talking with a pastor just last night about ministry, and sometimes it seems, and this gentleman, he's been pastoring 36 years, and he said that the first few years were a honeymoon. Three years was he said what, is what he got for his honeymoon, and then the last 33 years have been very difficult trying ministry, in his own words. And so, at the three-year mark, interestingly, what happened was the book "88 Reasons for Christ's Return" in 1988. I'm not sure if that's the exact title, but it's something pretty close to that. 88 Reasons. It's 1988, and I believe. The logic behind it is Israel became a nation in 1948, and a generation won't pass away, as Jesus said, and so you go forward 40 years or a generation, and then you get to 1988, many people expecting Christ to return at that time. And so when he didn't, this pastor had to deal with the people in his congregation who had led people astray and ended up being a very difficult situation that led to, uh, sounds like a church split. I mean, he's looking back 33 years ago, and that's still the moment in his mind that ended his honeymoon with his church. When all of these people got, uh, when he had to confront these people and say, you led people astray, they believed that Jesus was returning based on what you said. You read this book that predicted the day, and it ended up being wrong. And and I respected the pastor. I thought it was honorable he did this. He said, you're going to need to make a public confession. You need to acknowledge that you were wrong about this and that you had influenced people. You'd been a false teacher, essentially, or a false prophet. It's a terrible sin. In the Old Testament, 
people were executed for that sin and the people didn't do it and then they let other people astray but my point is there's been this language for for so much of the church age that for many of you you can even remember in 1988 some of the anticipation or expectation for that to be the year and so it's really easy to start believing that jesus isn't coming soon this boy who cried wolf type scenario you know and you, you sort of roll your eyes and it's like okay one more person who's saying this and i would discourage you from thinking either of these things from um you know getting upset at people who say jesus is coming soon or thinking that he's not coming soon because it seems clear from the bible that we are supposed to believe and live as though jesus is coming soon i have no problem whatsoever with people who talk about jesus coming soon because i believe that's what the bible encourages us to think and live like and that's because whether christ is or isn't coming soon and isn't soon a relative term i mean even when i'm saying soon what are we what are we talking about here you know how how many years or decades or centuries what would what would soon even be in in light of uh human history but it seems to me that scripture wants us living as though he's coming soon and this brings us to lesson five every generation is supposed to believe they're the last every generation is supposed to believe they're the last jesus taught that he was coming soon many others said the same paul said this first thessalonians 5 2 you're fully aware that the day of the lord is going to come like a thief in the night the author of hebrews hebrews 10 37 a little yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay james said this james 5 8 establish your hearts for the coming of the lord is at hand revelation 16 15 behold i'm coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go out about naked and be exposed so all of them we've got jesus we've got jesus james paul the author of hebrews john predicting jesus is coming soon but the nagging question is why hasn't he then how do we explain this and there's one place that i think explains this particularly well for us if you want to turn to second peter 3 we'll see how Jesus responded or excuse me we'll see how Peter responded to people whom he calls scoffers who weren't just asking or wanting a question answered but were mocking or ridiculing the idea that Jesus was going to come soon we're not going to turn anyplace else so after the Pauline epistles Hebrews James Peter go and turn to second Peter 3 to see how Peter resolves this for us So second peter 3 and verse 3 he says knowing this first of all the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires and this is how they're going to scoff this is what they're going to say in verse 4 where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep or for a long time all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation and so they were they were scoffing and what were they scoffing at basically what we're talking about the idea of Christ returning or the idea of Christ returning soon and so we can imagine that if people were scoffing in Peter's day only years removed from Christ's ascension how much more would we expect people to be scoffing today when we're 2,000 years removed from Christ's ascension 
But the fact that people were scoffing in Peter's day, this still doesn't help us understand this. This didn't answer the question that I asked, did it? This doesn't help us see why Christ hasn't returned yet. It just lets us know that other people have been asking that same question for 2,000 years, and some people even mocking the idea. But to see how Peter resolves this, look at verse 8. First, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So it's been 2,000 years for us, which seems like a very long time. But when you're eternal, like God is, and you live or exist outside of time, 2,000 years is two days. And so that's why I, when we talk about Christ returning soon, I mean, soon is so relative. For, for, G, for God, it's only been two days. That's not, a, that's not, time passes differently for him. Look at the next reason Christ has given us more time or hasn't returned yet. Verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he says the Lord isn't really slow to fulfill his promise. This means his promise of his return. Instead, he's simply waiting for what? He's waiting for more people to be saved. As much as I'd love to see Christ return, I'm very thankful that he didn't return before I became a Christian in my early 20s. And so I, the patience that was shown to me so that I could become a Christian, God is showing that same patience to other people so that they can also repent and come to faith before Christ's return. And then look at verse 10. Very similar to the verses in Luke. Compared with a thief again, he says, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done, in it, done on it will be exposed. And so what we see here with this discussion of a thief is the, the doctrine of imminency. And imminency doesn't mean that Christ is returning soon. It just means that Christ can return without anything having to happen before that. So when we talk about the imminent return of Christ, we're not saying that it's going to be next, next week or next month or next year, but we are saying that it can happen without anything having to precede it. Now, if you've got an event and it can occur, and nothing has to happen before it occurs, then how do you, what, in what way must you live? You must live in light of it occurring at any moment. If nothing has to precede it, then you have to live as though it could happen today, tomorrow, next week. And so because of that, God wants every generation living like they're the last. If the return of Christ is imminent, then every single person must live, or every single generation must live as though they are the last. And that's what God wants us believing. And that's what God wants us living like. And that's why every New Testament author preached this. And that's why every single faithful preacher throughout the church age has preached this same thing. And that's why faithful preachers until the day of Christ's return will continue to preach as though Christ could come back at any moment because he could. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let that make you upset at people who say things like that because this is exactly what God has wanted through the New Testament authors and through all the preachers throughout the church age. Now, one more verse, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him to show to his servants the things that, listen to this, must soon take place. Now, those words, must soon take place, are very significant because they affect the way that people view the book of Revelation. Some people, they're known as preterists, say that these words mean the events of Revelation must have taken place soon after John wrote this. And so they have a very early dating. We have a, we have a late dating for the book of Revelation. We see Revelation being written in the 90s, like maybe 95 or 96 AD. But what preterists do to then interpret these events occurring in the near future is they take the dating of Revelation and they put it before 70 AD so that when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, they can say that that was the fulfillment of the book of Revelation. And there are some people that see part of Revelation fulfilled then. Those are known as partial preterists. And then there are people that see all of the book of Revelation fulfilled in 70 AD, and those would be full preterists. But the Greek word for soon, it's the word uh, tahos. It's spelled T-A-C-H-O-S. T-A-C-H. It looks like tachos. And it's related to our word tachometer because it means quickly or it means suddenly. In fact, I think in the New King James, there's even an asterisk by the word soon to say that it can be translated as quickly or swiftly instead. So in other words, when it says that Jesus, that these things must soon take place, it would be better to understand them as these things must quickly or suddenly take place. So it's not referring to when Jesus is returning. It's referring to how Jesus is returning, quickly, swiftly, unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. And I want to conclude with this. We don't want to be taken by surprise. Even if Jesus isn't returning um, tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, or perhaps he's not even returning in our lifetimes, we should be living like he is not just because that's what the Bible commands, but because regardless of when he is returning, what still remains the same for us? We will meet him. We will stand before him. It could be when he returns during our lifetimes, or it could be the day of our deaths. But we will meet him, and we want to be ready. And living like we can meet him at any moment is really the only way for us to be ready. And that should impact our lives. It should impact our decisions, our thoughts, uh, it should really impact everything that we do. Now, if you have any questions or if I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I'd consider it a privilege, privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for these verses throughout Scripture that encourage us to look forward to Christ's return, to anticipate it, and maybe most importantly, live in light of that reality. It would do nothing for us to look forward to it without that affecting the decisions and, and actions that we take. And so I pray, Lord, that we would apply these verses and that we would uh, think about Christ's return and that it would affect the way that we live, that it would affect our decisions, and that we would be ready when he returns. We want to be alert. Spiritually speaking, we do want to be awake, Lord. And so help us to see any ways in which that wouldn't be the case for us. We thank you that we can look forward to Christ returning, that things will not continue on as they always have, but that you are bringing things to a wonderful end, a wonderful conclusion, at least for the righteous. We praise you for that, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.